back to the Shokazorba and uh, thank you for listening, whether you are on YouTube or <laughs> listening from your favourite podcast app. I've got to, I've, I'm laughing a lot, guys. We're laughing a lot today, but it's, uh, welcome back to the original setup. Stu, hello. Hello. It's great to have you on again. It's great to be here. <laughs> Is it? Yes. As always. <laughs> In the Third Space Studio. And Tim as well, welcome back. Thank you. Same noisy jacket as last week, I noticed. Yep. Mm. Does it come out in the recording? I don't know. Uh, a little bit last week, but right. it was barely noticeable. That's Unless good. you were watching it on YouTube where you would have seen you moving your arms in a <laughs> in a weird manner. Wild and wacky. Yeah, wild and wacky. I yeah, like that that's phrase, me. wild and wacky. That's how I would describe Tim. Yeah, mm. yeah, and lots of people have. <laughs> Roz calls you wise, wild and wacky. <laughs> Does she? Yeah. I've heard her say that. Tim, you're so wild and wacky. Roz is Tim's wife. We should say yeah, that's that's just make that clear. <laughs> Clear up any confusion. <laughs> well, if anyone knows, it's Roz. So we'll. Mm. I think we'll side yeah, defer to her. Yeah, that's right. Hundred yep. uh, percent. Welcome back, Stu. Uh, haven't been on the last couple of episodes. No. It's been really lovely to have you on. Mm. Do you want to do cultural artifact or yes. where you went to? Uh, into northern west, northwest New South Wales. Which one would you prefer to talk about first? Oh, well, I, th- I think if we've got time, it'd be good to throw in both. But mm. I could start off with Collie Inabri. We. Travelled up to Collyinnabray uh, to a river convention. Uh, some of our viewers and listeners would be familiar with that phrase. Uh, back in the early 2000s, our dear friend Isaac Gordon and his wife Eileen invited us up to um, northwestern New South Wales to participate and be on their team for uh, gatherings that travelled around different outback towns out in New South Wales where we'd have um, fellowship and meetings and uh, we'd sing and hear a talk and people would give testimonies and um, it was a really uh, awesome experience. We, co- we called them the river conventions because all the towns out in northwest New South Wales were on certain rivers and uh, the, yeah, so Isaac and Eileen uh, led us in that. Uh, Isaac's a Aboriginal pastor out in Brewarrina to this day. And uh, we've now had a 20-year relationship with them and have been incredibly blessed by going out to, and uh, you know, meeting Aboriginal people right across New South Wales. And Collinabri was the latest opportunity to go and have fellowship with our friends up there. So yeah. the good news is um, some of them are coming down to Sydney in the next couple of weeks after a week away. So if at all possible, we might be able to get one of our friends on the podcast, actually, to talk a bit about Aboriginal ministry and Aboriginal youth ministry that's going on in Brewarrina. Mm. So that'd be a really good thing to do. Um, But yeah, we had a good time. It was the biggest convention I've been to. Uh, There was over 100 people a week coming, oh, a meeting, actually. We we met over a a weekend. And yeah, at each of the meetings, there was over 100 people and people recommitted their lives to the Lord and people... um, made fresh commitments to Christ and it was just a really awesome time. I went up there with Tim Anderson and he's from Salt Revival Church and we had a really good time, yeah. That's cool. And just so if anyone doesn't know, it's it's up near the, uh, the border of New South Wales and Queensland. Yep. But it's probably from where we are at Kirrawee and I did a quick Google Maps saying eight hours and eight and a half hours. But I feel like that's, that's probably if you're driving, oh, if you're driving little, consistently. Yeah, if you don't stop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's about 11, 11 or 12 hours, yeah. What's uh, what's the ideal um, way to, for you to get, get going question, on the road yeah. trip? Many people You've ask this question. Yeah, there's 
there's uh, the best is to get someone to talk to and have a good conversation, <laughs> yep. or podcasts. I love history podcasts, so mm-hmm. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mm-hmm. There's a really good pos- podcast I come across called the Shock Absorber Podcast, which <laughs> not bad I've, one. That I've one, had, yeah. I've had a listen yeah. to it. Yeah, I've subscribed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you're just one. listening to yourself most of the time? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. No, we, um, I, yeah, I just really enjoy meeting new people and hanging out. And yeah, I've got I've got huge uh, music collection mm. that I really love. That's all on Spotify now, actually. So all that money I spent all over those years on music was kind of redundant, moot. Yeah, so a bit moot. But anyway, sorry so to bring that up. Yeah, that's what I think about. <laughs> it. I think wow, could have could have done better not to buy all that stuff, all those records. Well, you weren't to know. No. <laughs> Not at all. And you listened to it and enjoyed it at the time. But yeah, um, podcasts are good. I really, actually, all jokes aside, I really like uh, The Rest is History by mm. yeah, I enjoy uh, that Tom too. Holland. Yeah, you, got yeah. Him, you got me onto what's that. The other, what's the other guy on Dominic there? Sandbrook. Yeah, that's mm. a great podcast. I love well, I believe that. they're coming out. They are. Tour, yeah, they? we should go and watch them. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if we can get Tom on the podcast. That'd be pretty cool. Oh, that would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> we could ask him. <laughs> he probably wouldn't even open the email. <laughs> no. <laughs> <coughs> no, I think you sell yourself short, but anyway. There you go. Never know. Never know. His favourite, my favourite episode of his podcast was one on pigeons, the history. It's <laughs> <laughs> a history podcast, and it was very entertaining. So yeah, do yourself a favour if you haven't heard of that podcast, maybe give it a go. I haven't listened to as many episodes as you have, of course, but uh, I do enjoy the the brevity that mm. they approach history with. But also, yeah. I'm so surprised how quickly they get all the information together mm, really in good. one go mm. to produce. Is it weekly? Like podcast? Oh, yeah. Sometimes a couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah. How do they yeah. get so much information? That's all they do. Yeah. I mean, no, <laughs> I mean they're, they're authors, they're writers, they're mm. researchers. That's that's mm. that's their full time gig. So, mm. but yeah. they find such interesting stuff. Eh? Oh yeah, yeah, mm. yep. It's always fascinating to hear about history for me. Mm. Uh, Tim, do you have a favorite episode you've listened to so far? And rest of his rest is history. Uh, well, the uh, pigeon one was quite entertaining. <laughs> the other one that was quite entertaining <laughs> was um, the I can't remember the exact name. Worst parties in history, or something like that. Right. Most disastrous parties oh. of history, <laughs> and um, yeah, it gets out quite outrageous. Different mm. five top. The other parties. one, on a, on a serious note, was the history of the Cathars, which is that was a really sad mm-hmm. story about um, the turmoil in the Christian Church in France mm. back in the day. In that, uh, I think early Middle Ages or something. It was a very sad episode. So yeah, they, they do some really good mm. stuff too. Yeah. Mm. And there's a lot of interesting things about how Christianity f- mm. is part of part of history and all that. Well, it's interesting because they're not Christians, but they're mm. very sympathetic, very sympathetic to Christianity, and um, both of them really like the the effects that Christianity's had on the West. And so that's kind of refreshing. So mm. It's good. Yep. Well, I'll send the email. We'll see, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> be pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is the first time that you guys have been on together since what uh, you called a punch-up, <laughs> before we recorded. We'll say a verbal punch-up, and I don't think it was... The actual I think podcast you, itself was was a, was a intellectual stoush between Tim oh, and I. Oh, yeah. wow. It was that's very... I like that. I liked you like that? Yeah, Inter- intellectual, intellectual stoush. stoush. Not yeah. bad. Um, but uh, you're a little bit further down the road of your PhD. Stu. Well, because of Tim, actually. Like, oh, I think I was being lazy, Tim. and Tim's kind of <coughs> got me to think a bit deeper, and I think Tim was right. Yeah. So, well, well done, Tim. Why was Tim uh, well, hiding your laziness, as you've termed it? <laughs> <laughs> he did. I think I was being a bit lazy and not thinking deeply enough. Well, <clears throat> I've been away for a couple of weeks, and in the couple of weeks I've been away, did go to. Uh, River Convention but also spent some more time on my PhD and those of you that might have tuned into the episode about three weeks ago I think we were talking about 
the strategic approach of mm. youth ministry by Mark Center out of the book called Four Views of Youth Ministry. And if you're not interested in youth ministry, don't tune out because the great thing about that book is it suggests that how you set up your youth ministry, or in other words, how you pass on the gospel to the next generation affects dramatically the whole of your church. So I think it's a really good thing for people not just to compartmentalise youth ministry as another category of uh, ministry, but to actually think of it as a holistic part of how they do church. So anyway, in the book, as a brief uh, reminder, there's four different intellectuals that present four really captivating visions of youth ministry for the 21st century. So it was written at the turn of the century and, uh, you know, about 20 years ago, but it's a real seminal work, right? So you've got uh, a guy called Milan Nell from South Africa who writes an inclusive congregational approach up in the book. And that is uh, an argument that says that rather than young people being on the periphery of our congregations, they should be at the centre of our life together in everything that we do. And he calls that the inclusive congregational. Wesley Black presents an idea of youth ministry and kids ministry as a specialised ministry to do it well to bring kids up to be the future church leadership and he puts a chapter down on that. Uh, there's a guy called Chap Clark, all these names are luminaries in the, you know, the history of youth ministry. Well, Chap Clark puts a um, chapter down arguing that we really need to do more in mission in youth ministry and I think that is a really interesting call for us today, as the other two are as well, uh, particularly as we've really focused on discipleship a lot, particularly in our area in the world, in Sydney Diocese, in Sydney, uh, Sydney Anglican Diocese. Uh, I think it's great we've done so much discipleship, but I think that whole idea of mission is um, assumed that we'll get on with mission. I think we could do more with talking about that. So that chapter kind of brings up some interesting thoughts. And the final chapter by Mark Centre the third. Uh, who's the editor of the book, general editor, uh, he puts down this chapter on the strategic approach. And the strategic approach in broad brushstrokes is simply a youth, minister, a youth ministry that forms an intergenerational community of leaders and youth so that the kids are actually involved in leadership um, as teenagers and grow into that uh, more and more as they get older and more mature but they also get lots of uh, say and, and they're actually preparing to do something quite dramatic in the strategic approach. The idea is that the youth pastor will be sent out by the church to plant a new church with his youth leaders and his youth. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so the youth minister uh, takes the youth leaders and, and the, the youth uh, sent out by the church, by the way, because the idea is that cultural change is so significant that centres sort of suggesting that short of a revival, there's nothing you can do to overcome the cultural differences between younger people and older people. And because older people don't really start listening to young people until they get into their 30s, the solution is we'll let them start a new church for their culture, in their culture. And the phrase he uses is that they can plant a new church that carries on the theological uh, uh, connectedness of the mother church, but plants a new expression that is uh, true to Christ and culture. So that's the strategic approach. Now, over the years, we've been trying to work out where does our revival fit in those four different views of youth ministry. And of course, there's other people have said other things subsequent to that book about other models. But we've just kept thinking that maybe we fit in as a bit of a different model that sort of covers 
different aspects of all four of those different areas. But a couple of weeks ago, I was quite dramatic when Tim wasn't on the podcast and I said, actually, I think I've made a mistake. I think we are the strategic approach. Because even though we were an unwilling, an unwilling participant in the strategic approach, what happened to us is that um, after 20 years of ministry at Guy Anglican, uh, after, after Matt and I resigned from Guy um, there was a sense that uh, Guy Anglican wanted to continue to pursue the homogeneous unit principle, which separated generations out into different services. And we had been experimenting over the last 20 years with trying to bring everyone back together again. Uh, but in the end, the church did say, actually, we don't want to change beyond this point and we want to use this, the homogeneous unit principle. So we uh, resigned and um, after we resigned, the bishop of Wollongong, Peter Haywood, invited us to plant a church in the Southern Shire that was an intergenerational church. And we had the blessing uh, of Guy Anglican Church who gifted us 30 people to go and help plant the church. And those 30 people were fundamentally, mostly people who were leaders in the youth ministry. So we actually unwillingly and unwitting, not unwillingly, like, but we, we didn't plan on, we never planned on planting a new church, and so, but we ended up planting a new church under those circumstances. So my little light bulb moment a couple of weeks ago was, oh, I think we actually, even though we never intended to be, I think we are the strategic approach. Well, the week after, Tim, you came along and said, <laughs> no, that's not right. We're a different model to the strategic approach. So he I wasn't so blunt in that. Though. Well, <laughs> off offline, he kind of was <laughs> very clear. <laughs> no, Tone it down for the audience. He <laughs> was quite clear. I, I, I was uh, really clear on Tim's position in no uncertain terms. He was very polite, and as he always is, very genuinely uh, friendly, but very clear. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, I just spent a week thinking about it uh, and writing and doing a lot more thought on that because I am writing a PhD on this topic. So, Tim, yeah, thank you for your pushback. It was really good. And Joel for facilitating that conversation. It was really helpful. But, yeah, that's kind of where we're at uh, with my thinking that I don't think we are the strategic approach. But what I am thinking is of the four models, the strategic approach is the only one that suggests a church plant using youth ministry for church planning. Mm -hmm. And Tim made the point that maybe it is a good idea if a church wants to plant a church that they could use their youth, but maybe it's not a standard model for youth ministry that would work across the board. So that's got me thinking that Soul Revival has developed, I suppose, over a number of years, the shock absorber effect. And the idea of the shock absorber is that it's more optimistic than Centre's strategic approach, that the shock absorber says the church can change and grow. And in fact... As the church is trying to come to grips with changing culture, there can be a conversation within the local church between the generations about how we can work together to make changes, that the young people bring their flexibility and the older people bring their strength. And just like a shock absorber of a car needs to be flexible and strong, the older people are the strength and the younger people uh, give that opportunity to respond to change really well. So. That's where I think I've come to in the last couple of weeks, which is really exciting, actually. Mm. I'm really thankful for the two of you to help me to think that through. It was good. <laughs> that was a, yeah, it was cool that we brought it on the podcast. Uh, Tim, uh, how is Stu playing down? How aggressive were you in, in, in your points <laughs> I, I, I after? I wasn't aggressive. I'm <laughs> no, I didn't quite harmonious. And, um, 
Yeah. Well, we know that one of your strengths. We've, I think you've told me that's one of your strengths on the strength finders test. Yeah, on the strength finder. Yeah, harmony is is my hot top strength. Yeah. Apparently, I just want everyone to be friends. Mm. Um, but I did push back. Yeah, on that <laughs> one. But equilibrium has been restored to the force, so I'm, I'm happy with that. Equilibrium. <laughs> 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 no, it's um, no. I, I think it, it. I think this is this is great, and it's great to continue to challenge our thinking mm, and to keep putting like putting our uh, approach under the spotlight and as deeper thinking happens on other levels or as new ideas come up, um, uh, you know, it's great to be able to pressure test uh, our model yep. and to see, okay, well, what is going on here? And I think the, the, the way in which Soul Revival Church was planted was a pressure test to the system and... I think, as Stuart has said, and we, we've said it a couple of times over the last number of episodes, that sort of accidentally um, became the strategic approach, even though it wasn't the intention. And for me, I think that was the biggest difference was that it, it looks from the surface as if we enacted the strategic model. Uh, however, the, the point of the four views of youth ministry is they're each advocating for their position as youth ministry should aspire to be like this. And I think that's where, for me, mm. the alarm bells start ringing okay. because I don't think the strategic approach is what we should advocate youth ministries to do because if you're advocating for that, you're saying the best possible outcome for a youth ministry is to uh, grow up and develop a relational discipleship model with the leaders and kids that then um, butt off and intentionally start a new church. And if you're putting that forward as your primary model, you're saying every youth, a good, healthy, effective youth ministry should be striving to do this. And I think that's the biggest difference is that the shock absorber is not advocating for the buddying off of uh, youth ministry from the parent church. And a large part of that is because we are a lot more optimistic about the ability for the young people and the mature uh, or older people in the church to actually be that shock absorber together, to be the flexibility and the strength. Whereas Centre's model presupposes that generational gaps are insurmountable and that they're, because they're insurmountable, don't worry about trying to change what exists, uh, that will just be frustrating. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, bud off and that will be the most um, missionally effective, most discipleship effective for those young people rather than continue to be frustrated by a church that doesn't listen to them until they're 30. And so, yeah, I think that's where I was coming down as we talked about this and, and Stu and I talked on the phone during the week. This, that was becoming more, even more clear to me that uh, as someone who does go around to other churches and visits other churches and particularly more in children's ministry than youth ministry, but I am optimistic about intergenerational ministry. I am optimistic about the ability for different generations to have mutual and reciprocal relationships where there is mutual benefiting, where young people can learn from old and old people can learn from young, which only happens if you're intentionally bringing the generations together where the strategic approach is intentionally separating. So the difference, I think, where we came to last time Stu and I were here on the podcast together was the realisation for me that if you are seeking to plant a church then doing it with a significant number of people who have ministered alongside each other for a long time, have the, your theology, your strategy and practice in alignment, that makes a really healthy church plant. Mm. So I do understand that the 
strategic approach provides a good model for church planting, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is a strategy that you want to be advocating for every youth, every effective youth ministry should be striving towards this. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Stu, uh, you were just sharing us earlier that you wrote about 8,000 words approximately for the beginning of your PhD. Do you see doing this PhD as another pressure test like um, Tim was talking about to just how we think about yeah. ministry? I, I mean, I think it's really good because one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is we're really keen to have an open conversation with the world of youth ministry and church planting and ministry in general and indeed just uh, being a Christian at, in the 21st century. And that open conversation is really healthy, I think, because it actually doesn't mean that we just end up working within a little bubble and never testing and questioning what we do. So uh, this PhD is another form of that which will be peer-reviewed down the track and actually result in papers and things like that. So I think it's just testing these ideas as best we can, trying to find out what are the principles that are that are helpful in, in what we're doing and just really hoping that people can feel free to cherry-pick our ideas and pick the things that they like and leave the things they don't. Mm. So it's about sharing some of the things we've learnt from mistakes and some of the things we've learnt through good things and that also gives us an opportunity to learn from other people too because as Tim and I were engaging in that conversation about strategic ministry, um, yeah, I learnt a lot from that as a result. So, yeah, I, I find that really fun. Mm, that's cool. And um, uh, you also shared, and this is kind of, the, you know, we talk about cultural artefacts mm. and different things, but you said there was something um, by Patrick White that really helped you kind of clarify some of the things you were talking about in the PhD? Yeah, well, one of the things about the PhD is you start with the setting uh, of the PhD. So the Sutherland Shire is where we planted Soul Revival Youth Ministry in 1992, and it's where we planted our first church in 2012 in the Sutherland Shire. So I've just done a bit more background reading into the Sutherland Shire and just what do other people think about the Sutherland Shire. And one of the big themes of the Sutherland Shire is that it's on the edge of Sydney and it was quite geographically distinct from the rest of Sydney for a long time because it was cut off by a river mm. and the bush. And it's kind of – the Sutherland Shire is in the south of Sydney. There's beaches on the one side. On the south there's the Royal National Park, which is – the first Australian national park and it was actually um, called Royal in 1955 when the Queen came to Australia and gave it that title. And the rivers around it make it a very uh, beautiful area and it's quite lovely. But when um, it's also the place of first engagement between the British and, and the Dharawal people and that ended quite tragically as Joseph Banks and Captain Cook came ashore at Kurnell on the southern edge of Botany Bay uh, there was an altercation between the British and some Aboriginal people and an Aboriginal man was shot uh, in that confrontation. So that that's uh, very um, palpable and it's part of the history of the Sutherland Shire where we are. And the fact that um, after the Sutherland Shire was opened up to, to more migration, uh, the Aboriginal people were moved off their lands. So that was also a very sad story to be reading again. But seeing the... Uh, it was interesting seeing that the British were trying, and then the Australians after them were trying to work out what to do with the Southern Shire in some ways, like how to use it, because mm. the ground isn't that arable. And while it is uh, an area where farmers did settle and there were farms uh, put in the Southern Shire, it was also a place of great beauty. So interestingly, because it was so isolated, and, and I think the train didn't, 
come until the turn of the century almost or in the 1880s something like that and then the car bridges came after that in the in the late 1800s uh, 19 it might have been 19th century i'll have to to look that part up again but basically what i'm trying to say is as each you know technological connection the shire got more people coming to it but pretty much most of the people who came to the shire were either farmers at the beginning or they were tourists and so a lot of people came down for leisure so the royal national park was a big draw card the uh, the beaches down at Cronulla were a draw card. So a lot of people came on holidays. So uh, it was a place that was seen as a place of recreation and in a way a place of hedonism and, and consumerism and individualism. And in some ways those things haven't changed since there has been more migration. But the majority of the migration took place after the car bridges came across and in the second half of the 20th century as Sydney sprawl started to expand out further and further the shire became a cheaper alternative for many people and so these suburban areas popped up all over the place so the other big theme of the southern shire is suburbia mm. and uh yeah i've just spent the last week or two thinking what what has been the impact on the churches that are planted in the suburban context what does it mean to be a suburban area within such a recreational area as a beachside community mm. and so looking at some of those distinctives uh got me thinking um i, I did a bit of looking but I, did, I i really love australian literature and patrick white is one of my favorite authors and he wrote a book called the tree of man which looks into what he calls frontier well what what we could call frontier suburban areas and because uh southern shire was a later late comer to suburbia because of the lack of transport as the bridges were built Tom Ugly's bridge was the first one, I think. Uh, they were able to have people commute to the city for work. And so it became a dormitory suburb of Sydney where people would come uh, to live. And so the nuclear family, the dormitory suburb, um, Lake Christendom was a factor on Sutherland Shire. Um, most people went to church. Sutherland Shire, Guy Anglican Church, when it first started, um, you know, by 1960, they had 400 children a week coming to Sunday school. So that was kind of part of the culture but Patrick White looks at suburbia and, and he says he looks at it from a more darker point of view and he, he look, he's a bit anti-suburban so what I found really interesting is churches and houses all become um, a sort of bit of a monocultural in, in the Shire but he argues that monoculture is, uh, is a bit darker because he calls it um, the colonisation of modernity because the the suburb actually separates people from each other and from the natural environment. Mm. So the irony is that the Shire is in a place of great natural beauty, but the whole idea and the essence of suburbia is to locate a person's worldview within the four corners of a little fibro bungalow that they live in with all their technology. And the more technology they get, the more isolated they get from each other. So mm. uh, the motor car was a symbol of individual consumerism. And, you know, Miranda Fair was the first big mall that was built in Sutherland Shire. And after that, that was a big symbol of commercial uh, consumerism. But what, what I found, just to finish, is that in the midst of this suburban context, the churches have become very suburban and people are very individualistic in their worldview of Christianity and a bit consumeristic. And so I looked at that. And to my interest, though, there's been these moments of anti-suburban um, 
cultural pushback, I suppose you could say, or counterculturalism within the suburban context. So because of the technology, young people are connected up all over the world. And so when the hippie movement and the youth quake of the 1960s hit, that hit the suburban context as well. And the majority youth culture that came out of that in the Sutherland Shire was the surfing culture. So what was really interesting is that surfing culture, the early surfers were seen, they just thought they were bums who smoked dope and, you know, drank and dropped out of society and a lot of them were in the early days. And uh, basically the, um, yeah, the surfers were anti-suburban and, you know, in the 70s, the ex-servicemen from the American army and the, the American servicemen from Vietnam were coming on furlough to Australia and when they came to Sydney on furlough they brought heroin with them. So heroin was a massive impact on the 1970s Sutherland Shire as well amongst the surfing community. But in the midst of that anti-suburban moment you get the rise of the Christian surfers and they were the Jesus movement equivalent of, of the suburban context. And interestingly the fact that they were ministering to these dropouts and to these countercultural people the Ministry of Christian Surfers, which basically took the church to the beach and started trying to reach people on the beach because they wouldn't go to church because um, the, there was a big decline in attendances at church in that era. era. But the Christian Surfers themselves became countercultural. And even though they started at Gaimia Baptist Church, which is just around the corner here, it's a sub suburb of Sutherland Shire, they ended up leaving Gaimia Baptist Church to start a separate ministry, not a separate church in their case. But that was interesting because it's almost strategic approach that they actually left the church to do mm. their ministry. Uh, and I found that fascinating that then I started asking, is Sorrel Vival suburban or is it anti-suburban? Is Sorrel Vival uh, culturally relevant though, as Centre says, or is it actually countercultural? But in being countercultural, is it relevant to the culture of youth? and the next generation. So all these questions are starting to swirl around in my head now. So I was pretty keen to share that with you. Wow, that's interesting. What are you, what are you thinking so far, Tim? That's, you consider yourself anti-suburban? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I haven't really thought about those in, as categories, but the part of my brain that loves sociology is kind of spinning at the moment, just <laughs> thinking about all the things I now have to read about <laughs> getting in touch. Um, I mean, the most the, the areas of suburbia kind of study that I've looked at previously would be um, like the third place um, and also Robert Putnam's uh, Bowling Alone type thing, which is all about the loss of community through suburbia, which is, um, has been a significant part of that study. But this, this idea of anti-suburbia uh, is brand new to me, so I haven't really processed that <laughs> a lot yet. Um, it's fascinating, though, to think Who about... Who was that author, Tim? Uh, Robert Putnam, I believe is his name. Uh, so Bowling Alone is his most famous book. He's got a number of others, but he is a American sociologist and largely like uh, Ray Oldenburg is looking at the same kind of phenomena, the, the loss of culture and the loss of community uh, in the suburbs. And I don't recall in those, either of those books, they, this kind of trend that you're talking about in the separation of people from each other well, no, that's a strong theme. The separation of people from nature mm. is something new to me that you've raised yeah. today, which well, is interesting. What's interesting about Christian surfers is there was a and, – and surf the surfing subculture amongst young people in the Shire is it connects you with the environment because mm. you surf. Mm. Like it's a really interesting Getting thing. Getting in the ocean and the sand. And Pat stuff. Patrick White said of um, the suburbs that their, their 
colonizing modernity, not meaning colonization as in 18th century colonization, but as in industrial way of thinking, colonizing people's minds yeah, and yeah. lifestyles. And he says that, uh, he says a really interesting thing. He says, Patrick White in his book says that um, suburbia is like a lantana hedge that smells like cat. And I found that <laughs> phrase so good. Because uh, if, if you don't know what a lantana hedge is, a lantana plant is a plant that was brought out from Europe to Australia to make nice flowery hedges. And it's very prickly and it smells like cat. It's, it smells terrible. But also the cats were brought out by Europeans too. And the, two of the most invasive species in Australia are cats and, and lantana. So they're almost heart impossible to eradicate in Australia because they just are taking over. And so that's, that's a really interesting thing. There's a lady called Bridget Rooney who's written a book called Suburban Space, the Novel and Australian Modernity. And she unpacks some of Patrick White's themes and looks at the fact that as as um, suburbs are taking over in the 1950s and 60s, they are really setting up a new vision of Australia that is disconnected to the natural environment and actually is, is in some ways like an invasive species. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a darker view of suburbia, but... Um, I thought you had something else to say. Well, I was going to say that it's... I actually think it sort of casts a shadow of what materialism does okay. to the Christian... Because materialism, Jesus says over and over, you can't love God and money. And, and I'm just wondering about this whole thing that, you know, the Sutherland Shire, jokingly, people from the Shire over the years have even been criticised for this, but they call it God's country because it's mm. so beautiful and mm. it's so rich mm. and wealthy. Which is often a comment on the natural environment, is yeah, the surf, yeah, the national yeah, park, yeah, the yeah. rivers. So yeah. there, there is a, a natural yeah. tinge to that. That's right. And the recreation everyone in yeah, the Shire yeah, yeah. is obsessed with. And also, though, there's this sense of wealth will bring us happiness. Yet, you know, the heroin epidemic in the 70s is a dark moment that, mm. that shows that money doesn't actually bring happiness. And then in the 90s, when we were ministering in Sorrel the Sutherland Shire had the highest rates of youth suicide in the whole world. So materialism doesn't actually bring happiness. So this idea of suburban happiness is challenged by the gospel. And that's where Ian Hussey's research is really interesting as well, that he says that the Bible... Uh, actually critiques our culture as well as affirms aspects of it. Mm. And so that's where I'm going to bring all that uh, Ian Hussey research in a little bit. Mm. I was just thinking that as – so growing up as a teenager in the 90s, there did seem to be a recognition of the darkness of mm. suburbia. And I'm not sure because you know, you're the, you're the half-generation older again, mm. but if we go back to the 50s and 60s in the mm. post-war, it was the boom of the suburbs yep. as this utopia mm. um, of this is going to bring happiness, you know, mm. materialism, prosperity. And certainly by the 90s, I'm just thinking about the pop culture uh, that I was listening to, like a lot of the um, skate punk bands, so mm. The Offspring and Blink-182 and Green Day, a lot of their songs are critiquing suburbia mm. um, and quite anti-suburbia in the mm. sense that they, they've realised that uh, this, this beautiful vision, this utopia that often their boomer parents bought into has just resulted in youth suicide, it's resulted in divorce, it's resulted mm. in all of these systemic problems. And so there's a couple of really key songs uh, from those bands that are really challenging this notion of suburbia being a utopia and being really anti, um, yeah, this, this vision. And so I think mm. I probably imbibed a little bit of that so that I don't see mm. suburbia as this wonderful um, 
mm. hope. Um, but also growing up in the Sutherland Shire, which is suburbia, there's also the keeping up with the Joneses mm. kind of pressure there as well. Is. So I think I've I think I've grown up now with a bit of that tension. There's that tension of yeah, it'd be lovely to have the house in the backyard and the you know two and a half kids and the picket fence and the dog in the backyard and all that, that kind of vision. But also with this real cynicism towards it as well because I also took on a lot of those 90s adolescent uh, mm. vibes that were coming through pop culture, which was, no, this actually doesn't solve anything. We've got broken homes, we've got broken marriages, we've got broken families, we've got just as much drug use, uh, domestic violence, we've got all of these things going on and it hasn't actually achieved what our boomer parents thought it was going no, to achieve. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Do you think there was a lot of anger around that or is it just cynicism? I think there's anger as well. Yeah, I, I mean, think is like maybe or may have been another generation after Tim to a degree, mm. <laughs> yeah. a little bit. For that half generation, like yeah, half, half generation. Yeah, I think that turned into anger, like around my generation. Yeah, well, it's interesting. That's when the Cronulla rights were. Yeah, yeah. And, it was, and that was a racist was expression of that, but it was anger. Yeah, it was the year yeah. I finished high school. Mm. Yeah, well. Yeah. Or the year after, year after I finished mm. high school. Yeah, well, I was thinking about so one of the the best books I've ever written, read, uh, not written, read was um, <laughs> one of the best books I've ever written. <laughs> I have zero in that category. Um, yet. So yet. yeah, um, so it's called uh, Nietzsche. Leave those kids alone, and it's a great take on. It's one of the Triple J presenters who's written this deep philosophical book on. Uh, it's based on My Chemical Romance, mm. um, their big song, which is Black Parade, okay, written yeah, on yeah. about Black Parade. And he said oh, he first listened to that song uh, and he realised that it was an epic anthem and that the world had changed when mm. he heard that song. Mm. And so he goes into that. But one of the things he details in that book and the thing that stuck with me most was he draws out really clearly the distinction between uh, the sort of mid-90s punk to the early 2000s emo and he draws mm. out the two different philosophical trends that are cap- happening through there and what stuck in my mind was he talks about how um, punk music raged against the system uh, but sought, like, sought hope on the other side of it. So punk wants to break things in, in the hope that something else will come yeah. out of it. And he said what happened with the emo music and a lot of this is post 9-11, which we've talked about before, is that all of a sudden it people, the, the music was just sad and navel-gazing. And he Not traced... Even more nihilistic, eh? More nihilistic, yeah. And he traces this back 200 years. He talks about the romantics and um, Mary Shelley and he, like, he goes deep into philosophical history. But he says what happened was that uh, punk music hopes for something on the other side um, and emo stops hoping. So mm. emo looks inward and just navel gazes and says, the world sucks, so I'm just going to sit here and be sad. And, and emo was a subculture, wasn't it? it was yeah, that's like right, yeah. dressed in black and dyed their hair black. And mm. Yeah, so you've got a lot of punk sort of like, overtones, you've got a lot of goth overtones, mm, like but goth it's very late 80s, intro, yeah. Yeah, introspective. Mm. Um, whereas there was a lot of frivolity around skate punk. Mm. Um, there was a lot of silliness and, and fun and, you know, mm. Blink-182 would like hold just jokers that were, you know, mm. raging against suburbia, raging against the the idealism that their boomer parents had sold for them. But there was still this kind of joviality to it, which the emo didn't have. And I think that that, that was that break that you talked about, Joel, that it, it turned from let's break things, but 
have fun doing it to mm. let's be angry and sad and destructive. And I think maybe a number of seasons ago, we talked about the mm, uh, Woodstock. Woodstock. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Woodstock 99 and how everyone just broke things to the point mm. of burning it down. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, I mean, music is always, again, a picture of kind of what's going on in society. And I wasn't thinking so much of the Eve, Eve, emo um, uh, genre, but the, the new metal scene like... Uh, Rage Against the Machine might have been just before that, but Limp Bizkit is one that I really think of. Is that mm. that was the band I really got into in the middle of high school, and probably, you know, at the time spoke to me about how it just felt like there was like you were told everything was good, but it didn't seem that good. So, but like, and and that, that was where I was thinking the anger because a lot of that music had a lot of anger in it. That's interesting. That's a recurring theme I'm picking up on. Uh, the yeah, the baby boomers rebelled against that in the 60s. Mm. Then there was a rebellion against it again in each generation after that. So each generation, I mean, my generation was kind of a bit more cynical and sad. Um, but yeah, it's pick picked up by songs like uh, Green Day too. I was thinking of Jesus of Suburbia by Green Day. The lyrics are, I'm the son of rage and love, the Jesus of Suburbia, the Bible of none of the above, on the steady diet of soda pop and Ritalin. No one ever died for my sins in hell, as far as I can tell. At least the ones I got away with. Yeah, that's so it's, it's, it's pretty nice. Devoid of hope, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, but yeah, then that's that it's anger like, and and it's almost like uh, religion's not the answer. They're mm. saying religion's not the answer. Yeah. There's no hope for us, so we may as well just mm. do whatever I want. Well, one thing I'm wondering is: has the suburban modernity colonized the church? in such a way that people now think the church stands for suburbia. Oh, okay. Because for Green Day, it's like Jesus of suburbia is pretty blatant, saying that there is a kind of suburban Jesus that is pitched at us. Interesting thought. Oh, that in terms of so uh, materialism, individualism, yeah. that's the Jesus that's yeah, pitched. Yeah, a Christianity that combines materialism, individualism, consumerism with... So you can have the world and with you can have Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, so it conflates the values of the gospel with the values of a middle-class suburban yep. identity. Yeah, that's a better and way of putting it. Yeah. Well, yeah, just, yeah, and that's a, I think that's a really valid critique um, in that it doesn't then challenge the values of mm. a middle-class suburbia and it's also is um, unattainable for those of lower socioeconomic and it's also disinterested to those who are of a higher socioeconomic. So if you've got these values that are in the middle, then you're actually only going to um, be evangelising those who are in the middle who can resonate with those ideas mm -hmm. and you're going to continue to reinforce uh, what is potentially non-gospel values rather than actually critique them with mm -hmm. a, a Jesus ethic. And that's where Hussey's really helpful for me because he says the Bible does... At some points affirm culture and sometimes that's right um critiques culture so my thought is with the coming right back to the strategic approach it's saying that they're trying to create they're going to send out young people to create a modern version of the church that's in line with the culture of the suburb and even if that culture was countercultural to the earlier generations there may be a predominance of a continuation of suburban mm. christianity in that next expression and I think what we did in the 90s was we were a countercultural moment at Soul Revival where we, we consciously thought of ourselves as countercultural, mm. um, possibly because of our 
context and the surf number of surfers that were in the group and stuff, maybe, I don't know. But the idea that we wanted we, we wanted more than just, you know, the the suburban house and a car and a dog and a white picket fence and mm. a good job and, you know, go on holidays, you know, life there was more to life than that. And one of the big themes we were craving was more community that, you know, we we are reconciled to God and to one another and, and what does that look like? Does it look like spending as least amount of time as possible with Christians so you could also do these other things in, in your life? And a big um, pushback for early soul revival was we spent much, too much time together and some people felt like we were demanding too much time but the idea of actually spending more time with each other around the Bible was a big theme of our earlier youth ministry that was really popular and a lot of the young people that came to Soul Revival were from non-church backgrounds that were thrilled to see some kind of stability in their life because my generation Gen X was the first to experience high rates of suicide as well but high rates of divorce so Mm. 50% of our parents were divorced by the start of the 90s so there was this cynicism that came from that and anger so when there's a group of Christians who go oh you know all churches is an hour a week and if you've got time a bible study and if you've got time help out with the youth group for a couple of years it just felt shallow and it felt like a veneer that was over the top of uh, our life we wanted to go deeper than that and spend more time in community and i suppose surfers do that they go for a surf they hang out on the beach they spend more time it's it's a bit of a time intensive sport so maybe it came as a bit of cultural relevance but also i think there was this sense that some of the conflict we experienced over the years was because we were pushing back on suburbia and didn't really realize we we're doing it i mm. think well it's just interesting that uh, tim earlier you were talking about the strategic approach and you brought up the well, we have to, the leadership moves on and it's kind of a breaking continu- continuity of leadership and thinking about pitting kind of the shockers or the soul revival model up against the strategic approach. I think that's something you're talking about there, Stu, is that actually mm. continuity was one of the things that yeah. really inspired and you. And that's anti-suburban. Yeah, yeah, which really inspired you for mm. um, to start soul revival and say we're committing, we're committing to this. Mm. And I thought that was an interesting parallel, the fact that I also saw that we're talking about me growing up in high school before is that the continuity of leadership just for me Mm. personally was like oh this is really important Mm. for me and i found tons Mm. of value Mm. in that as well Mm. so i swear here's my final question because tim i know you have Mm. to go Mm. final one for you guys to bat around and you 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 pitched this kind of at the end of the last time you guys had your punch up that we called it <laughs> verbal punch up. Uh, what would you call it? intellectual stout? stout. Intellectual stout. Um, yeah, it wasn't wasn't violent at you all. You said I'm trying to figure out if soul revival is its own model of ministry or um, more aligned with a strategic approach. Mm. Do you think you're any closer to being uh, having a clearer position on? Yeah. That? No. I think I think that where I think I'm heading is how how does the shock absorber compare and how is it differentiated from the, the strategic approach. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've moved away from thinking that there's only one way for youth ministries to plant a church. I think the shock absorber is another way to plant churches that we could plant more churches using young people, but there would be teams of young people and old people going in those teams, not mm-hmm. just young people, yeah. but they still could be driven by that entrepreneurial flexibility of young people and have older people in it that were keen not only to listen, but to be there to support and encourage the young people and as they start those ministries. Well, yeah. yeah, which provides continuity mm-hmm. too. And I also think I'm drawn to, which could be for another day, but I'm really drawn to the network church planning idea rather than a 
you know, churches leaving and not being in connection with each other. I've always felt like the hub and spoke model is a lot better mm. way of doing church planning too. Yeah, cool. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. What and about you, Tim? Well, yeah, what about you, Tim? Yeah, I, I do think that the Shock Absorber is significantly differentiated from the strategic approach so that they are different models of ministry. And, and yes, while I've said the strategic approach provides a good model of church planning, I think one of the things that we have done with our spokes each time we send out a new group of people to plan a new gathering as part of the Soul Revival Network that we have uh, intentionally looked for different generations to be a part of that. So it's not just sending off the young people because they have a particular culture which other older generations are not going to be able to understand and if we include older people there then it's not going to be as relevant and it's not going to be as meaningful. We're saying no, 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 we're sending out people of many different generations together and part of our all-age, all-stage approach is, at the very least, if there's a generation missing, we notice that as a loss. And so we go, oh, it's, it's great that we send this team out. Um, and if there's no one over the age of 70, um, yeah, we're not going to necessarily force someone over the age of 70 to join, but we notice that and we go, wouldn't it be wonderful to grow some elders into this congregation? And if there's no teenagers, we go, wouldn't it be wonderful to... Uh, think of some ways in which some teenagers may missionally join this or we can see some teenagers in this. So we're intentionally looking for the different generations because that's what the shock absorber is doing. And um, so we're providing that space. And I think that's a lot healthier uh, and I think that's going to be a lot, going to have longevity um, in terms of how you grow faith deeply in intergenerational relationships. Mm. Yeah, I think that's yeah, a really that's good point. What about you, Joel? What are you thinking? <laughs> I think from the last time we talked about it, I was like, I think uh, Soul Revival or the Shock Absorber, whichever way you want to term it, is probably its own way of doing ministry. Mm-hmm. And I think inherent in that Shock Absorber model is picking up different ideas from other places and trying to use them as best working in the current context it's in. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I eventually came to. And mm-hmm. from listening to you and Tim talk about it last time we were talking about it, but yeah, that's what I that's what I think, and I think uh, you often have had to explain that a lot to people that maybe don't understand it, or you're just introducing the idea. And I think that's the reason that we do this on this podcast is to show that actually the the continuity that we kind of talked about, or the longevity that Tim spoke about, comes from continually challenging the ideas. And I think the um, what did you call it? Pressure pressure test. Mm. So the the we welcome the pressure tests in order to make sure we are continually challenging the ways we are thinking about ministry in order to serve God as best as possible. I think that's where I've come to. It's awesome. Um, yeah, that's really cool. And I think also just on the point that Tim was saying about looking at our other gatherings is that something another idea that you've introduced introduced to us today, so we can talk about it next episode, was... Um, what about those gatherings having youth groups and do they help grow the church and is that a good idea to do? So I think how important are those youth groups? Yeah, how I think they're important. To growing, yeah. yeah, to, yeah. And as going all the way back to the start of what you said about the four views of youth ministry is how you think about youth ministry mm. also shapes how you think about how you do church mm. as a whole in a holistic sense. So I think that's probably a good uh, leaving off point for this episode but a good starting point for the next episode. Sounds good. great. It's, it's really been, good actually. It's been a really fun discussion thank you very much to both of you and thank you to everyone listening or watching if you have any questions and want to add to the discussion as we would very much welcome you to uh, you can email me at joel at shockersorbit.com.au and thank you very much to ek
our producer, as always, who puts together mm. all our episodes every job. time. Does really a great good. job. Has them ready to go by Monday, mm. even though they're coming out on Wednesday and Friday mm. the next, <laughs> the next um, in the following week. So thank you very much to Eck, and uh, thank you to Stu and Tim, as always. And we finish with a one-way. 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 One-way.